Hey there, I'm Raji Sohal. Have you noticed your cup of java is pricier than usual? We found out by how much and whether it will actually make a difference to whether consumers will continue to indulge. And a new study shows that luxury homeowners are paying a lot less in property tax than you might expect. And that's even after they knock out the obvious factors that might account for it. We talked about what the government might do to make it more fair. But first, the restaurant industry is on the up and up. 27 new eateries in the 90 blocks of real estate that make up the downtown Vancouver. I'm going to find out more about that now. The Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association has a new report out and it shows some promising developments for the city's restaurant industry. Here to talk more about it with us is Ian Tostenson, the president of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Hi, Ian. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for being with us so early on a Sunday morning. Um, So let's talk about this uh, report. Overall, what did it show us? Well, it's really interesting. Um, I've been looking at the numbers, and so in context, if you look at the periods and from their report, 2012 to 2018, we were averaging about 10 new net restaurants a year opening in, in downtown Vancouver. Now, the downtown Vancouver is, is broadly described here. It leaves out a few areas, but the trend is there. And what we've seen now since 2021 is that we're probably opening about 12 or 13 new restaurants each year net. So those, And that's quite typical of this industry where we get a lot of closures. Um, you know, people shouldn't be in the restaurant industry, and they, uh, they close quickly. They're undercapitalized. But the really good news is from that point of view, or the other one is, is so we're getting more openings, but our spending is way up, which is obviously kind of uh, natural because since 2021 to 2022, because you remember, Roger, I mean, it's only since last spring. So this year, last spring, April, that the protocols were uh, left in restaurants, but put that put away. So masks and vaccine requirement vaccination. So, we haven't been doing this full-time in that respect for very many months this year, and it's looking pretty good. That's great to hear. And do you feel the restaurants are over the pandemic hump in business? I think from our from a storefront perspective, you would look in and go, wow, uh, you know, they're full, they're doing well. It's hard to get a, a reservation in, in more of a the premium sit-down restaurants in Vancouver. And, and by the way, a lot of the growth in Vancouver, I should, I should have added, is in a category, not quick service, that's your sort of drive-through, you know, McDonald's kind of concept. But this is fast casual service, which is your poke, which, is, um, uh, which has been the largest increase of poke bars, um, that places that are sort of fresh, healthy, appeals to millennials, quick to go, but it's a bit healthier food. So that's the category that's growing. We're getting a slight increase in sit-down restaurants, but that part of the market in Vancouver is is, is pretty well taken care of. We have, you know, some tremendous concepts downtown in Vancouver, you know, sort of at the higher casual to the more premium. But um, if you look from the storefront point of view, it's looking great. If you get behind the scenes, our biggest issue um, is labor. You know, I've talked about that before, but. We're massively short in labor, and that's a demographic uh, trend. It's not because people uh, left restaurants. In some part, they did, but they're coming back, interestingly enough. We're not seeing any indication right now that consumers are pulling back. It's interesting with the coffee guy head on, but we're not seeing that people's spending is going down. Uh, We're going into Christmas. People are getting excited. 
but we still have this urge, Roger, to go out. I know we haven't, we haven't, uh, that's not over. I mean, people are still experiencing concerts and venues and sporting events and new restaurants and waiting to get into a new Michelin starred restaurant. So there's a lot going on. It's just really quite exciting. And, and we sort of predicted that, you know, we'd have a, the downfall a little bit of the industry that we would leave and the stronger coming in with some innovation and freshness, which I think is going to be great for the vibrancy of downtown Vancouver. Yeah. You mentioned the Michelin star there. Uh, now, eight restaurants in Vancouver got acknowledged in that way. Does the does the positive outcome from that, all the buzz out of that, does it trickle to the rest of the foodie scene? Like, do you think people will eat out more in general because Michelin came here and granted some stars? Yeah, so you go try to get a reservation, you can't, so you go to your second choice. Right? So people are going, oh, absolutely. But on that list, so there was um, the, uh, the Bib, uh, Bib Gourmand, which is, there were 12 of those, Yeah. Uh, which is basically great food, you know, good pricing. And then there's another 40 that are on the recommended list. So there's yeah. quite a few that people can bounce around in. But, you know, anything that happens... You know, whether it's an Elton John concert or a Canucks game or whatever, it brings people out. You know, the weather was our friend this year. Um, and I was actually just talking to your producer because Seahawks are playing in Germany right now, which yeah. is fascinating, 70,000 people. But we wish that game was at 1.30 this afternoon because people would be ordering in the food or going out to pubs or bars or restaurants oh, okay. to watch it. So those things have a really strong effect on, on the economy. And, and I don't know, it's... Even if you look at this and say, well, maybe it's just Vancouver, what's happening in other places like Kelowna and Victoria, same thing. More so in Victoria, Kelowna's down a bit in tourism, but it's really, really strong out there right now. So um, that's that's good. I was, my fear was we'd go from a pandemic disaster to, oh, now we have an economic downturn, but I think we're going to get through this all right one way or the other. That's very positive of you. Ian, I'm so curious, what do you think that the like long lens, the long-term impact of the pandemic is going to be on the restaurant business? Like you mentioned labor. I don't know if that's associated with that, but what are the, or maybe what are the long-term considerations that have changed about running the business since we've experienced mm. the pandemic? You, your, your whole futuristic design of a restaurant is going to be a smaller footprint and it's going to deal with, uh, and, and this will be a new build or, you know, a new restaurant opening. You're going to really consider your takeout and delivery, uh, the physical uh, space you allocate towards that, your dine-in side of it, and your patio. You're going to want to have three sort of sources of revenue, whereas before the pandemic, we were largely relying on dine-in. Uh, that was kind of it. Now it's sort of three-faceted. We've got patios, dine-in, and takeout and delivery. So that's a consideration. Um, you saw recently, um, which I think is another indication in sort of this premium casual, Pizza Hut on Robson Street uh, had a, a robot running around uh, a few weeks back delivering pizzas within a certain framework. And you've seen more and more of that happening uh, on campuses. Uh, you, know, you could be in the library, you order up, and the robot will deliver the food outside, and you get a code, and you take your food. It's kind of cool. So that's taking away sort of uh, helping with the menial tasks in restaurants, and there's a lot of uh, there's been a lot of Japanese restaurants on the island and a couple in Vancouver that are using robotics to to move dishes. And um, so that that's helpful. You've been seeing robots that are uh, greeting at the front, and you're also seeing um, machinery that will produce, you know, bread or pizzas or even like, there's a cocktail machine in Vancouver right now that'll, you know, you put your money in, it'll make you a custom cocktail. So innovations in technology, pay at the table, making it quicker, Reducing the sort of downtime with labor is going to be really critical in the future. And I think 
Um, I think the next thing that we see uh, is this whole thing around food security and move towards more local and uh, and looking at how vulnerable we were during in the floods and the things that happened in the food supply chain and really looking towards you know the experience a tighter experience between the farmer and the restaurant as we go down you know and as we go forward wow that was a good and impressive crystal ball thank you ian (laughs) (laughs) i think it's all going to be good i mean raji if you I said to someone the other day, just imagine, close your eyes and imagine downtown Victoria or Vancouver, though, restaurants, there's nothing there. I mean, they are the draw. You know, in a lot of cases, white people go downtown and I'm um, getting quite excited. So, no, the future looks good. And it always has. I mean, it's a very entrepreneurial uh, category of uh, businesses that uh, they, we just kind of figured stuff out. And when we were able to, you know, to, to, to take the hits and move on and change and um, we'll be here a long time and okay. continue to change and be uh, positive, yeah. All right. Thank you so much for that, Ian, and have a great Sunday. Thanks, Roger. You too. Bye-bye. I have a question for you. Any chance that you're drinking your cup O this morning, maybe while we chat, while you're listening to the show? I know I've got my flat white here, and if I'm not reaching for my go-to matcha or my black tea, it's coffee for me. But you know what? I have wondered if my coffee might be costing me more at the grocery store. And I haven't paid too close attention to it, but Sylvain Charlebois is the one with the answers on these kinds of questions. He's the Senior Director of Agri-Food Analytics Lab and a prof at Dalhousie. Sylvain, salut. Good morning. Bonjour. (laughs) I hear coffee prices are up. So just how much are we talking here? Well, I mean, everything is more expensive, obviously, and uh, coffee is not immune to uh, what's happening at the grocery store. Retail, uh, it's about uh, 15% on average, uh, including uh, the coffee you would buy in BC. Uh, and uh, in at, re- at the restaurant, uh, we have seen increases here and there, anywhere between 10 to 20%. So your cup of Java is costing you more. And to be honest, I think most people uh, would not have noticed because, uh, I mean, this is this is the trick with uh, with a digital economy. Uh, you don't really see the money you spend on coffee. You just, you know, tap or you just put your card uh, in, in a machine and that's it. You don't visualize the amount of money you pay. So people may not have noticed uh, that their cup of coffee is more expensive, but yeah, coffee is more expensive, whether it's retail or service. It's such a good point, Sylvain, because when I'm at the grocery store, yes, I look at prices, but one of the prices I don't look at ever is that for my coffee. I just grab it. I just go to the one that I always buy. Same thing when I'm at a cafe and buying coffee. I just hand over my card because coffee is not something that I'm able to give up on. And the consumer price index shows coffee prices have gone up more than uh, baking ingredients even. Yeah, absolutely. Demand elasticity is uh, is actually quite uh, is, is more significant with coffee. In other words, you're right. People don't necessarily look at prices all that much. It's a habit, and that's why you see a lot of chains sometimes offer uh, discounts uh, with coffee to get people in stores, in restaurants, and create habits. Uh, this is exactly what A and W is doing right now. Uh, trying to, you know, they're selling coffee for a dollar. They're probably losing money, uh, but they they want you in. Uh, that's the bait, uh, so you can actually buy other things. 
at this grocery store, we'll actually have our preferred brand, our preferred roast, our preferred flavor, and price may come after. Uh, at the meat counter in the dairy section, produce very different. We absolutely are. Be- we do become price sensitive, and we do look at prices way more often. So interesting. So what accounts for the increase with coffee in particular? And is it temporary? Or are we looking at something permanent here? Uh, it's it's an up and down thing, I would say. Uh, I mean, a couple of years ago, uh, a pound of coffee was actually quite expensive compared to now. And so uh, I actually think that uh, futures aren't doing too badly. We're not expecting prices to explode anytime soon. Um, but producing Arabica coffee, which is the one bean that is becoming more popular everywhere, it's more sour, bitter, and, uh, and, and of course, people are looking for that taste a lot more than, than before. That's, that's Starbucks' legacy, really, in the market. But uh, we are able to produce, uh, and uh, we seem to be looking at a good harvest uh, around the equator and just south of the equator. So we should be okay for the next little while, but prices are going up. And it's not because of coffee. It's because of packaging, logistics, transportation. All of these things cost more right now. Oh, okay. It's all those factors. But still, like you say, 10 to 20% is a lot. So I wonder if you think coffee drinkers are going to curb their habits? Uh, my guess is that they'll uh, be a little bit more careful. They may actually decide to uh, drink more often at home. Uh, you tend to pay less per cup when you're at home. And uh, I do expect over the holiday season to see uh, more campaigns to sell us uh, coffee makers, uh, great coffee makers uh, that we can use to, to brew at home. Uh, let's face it, the work from home phenomena is real. Uh, we are expecting more people to work from home more often, which means where you drink coffee, what kind of coffee you'll be drinking uh, will change. Uh, we actually expect 50% of the workforce in Canada to work at least one day a week by 2025. So COVID is uh, you know, psychologically over perhaps, but uh, the legacy of COVID is, is it really did get more people to want to work from home. And when you drink coffee at home, it's just different. Absolutely. Yes. And when uh, I think about it, actually, I've been wondering why I was suddenly being served all these ads for fancy Italian coffee makers on my social <laughs> <That's> media. <right. laughs> it, it's not a coincidence. They know you'll be spending more time at home and you want that perfect machine to make that perfect cup for you. So interesting. And Sylvain, now I really want another cup of coffee. So <laughs> thank Absolutely. you again for your time. Merci. Take care. Bye-bye. So if you have more, you earn more, you pay more for taxes, right? Well, that's the way our taxes generally are understood to be working. But according to a study out of UBC, that is not what's happening. So for example, if the owners of Vancouver area homes with a median value of say $3.7 million, they pay income taxes of just $15,800. That means that owners of luxury homes in Vancouver are actually paying a significantly less amount than other North American cities. Tom Davidoff is the director of the UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate and joins us on the line now. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So first off, let's get an overview of what the study showed us. 
Right. So our goal was to ask how progressive is taxation in different markets. And one measure of progressive, the usual one, is how much tax do you pay as a function of your income. But another measure of how much ability people have to pay is the value of their home. And that's been understood, I think, since the Middle Ages, uh, that a decent basis for taxation, a measure of wealth, is the value of one's home. That's why we have property taxation, for example. And so if you look around the U.S., pretty much when homes go up in value by uh, 1% within a market, say Boston or New York or San Francisco, and the same would apply to Toronto, about 0.7% extra uh, tax. And so, you know, there's a pretty, uh, pretty decent slope to the line connecting property value to taxation on a graph. In Vancouver, that line is very flat. And we are sort of off the charts in the weakness of the relationship between property value and how much the owner of the property pays in tax. And as you mentioned, if you line up all the properties from cheapest to most expensive in Vancouver, greater Vancouver, as of 2018, the top 5% of homes, the median or the middle value in that bucket uh, from 95 to 100%, the top 5% of values was 3.7, 3.8 million. And yet the owner of that property, that if you lined up the owners from least tax to most, among those who own the most expensive properties, they'd be paying $15,800 in tax in the middle, which would indicate an income of around 100000 But you needed an income of roughly uh, 850000 if you wanted to buy a home like that yeah. uh, with, say, 20% down in earning income. Yeah. So, so I think some listeners might find that kind of shocking. So why is this happening and how is this happening? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, we tried to rule out some causes. So, for example, one thing you hear a lot is, well, you know, there's a lot of people in Vancouver who bought their home many years ago, sure. maybe retirees. They bought a place for, you know, 150000 Now it's worth $4 million, right? I mean, that's something right. that could have happened. So one thing we do is we uh, say, well, let's confine the data to people under age 65 who are working age. Okay, so that's one step we can take. And then we can say, and let's, you know, the other thing, of course, one hears is these are all overseas people who don't live in the home. So the next step we take is to rule out and and take out of the data uh, people who are not just older, but people who don't live in Canada. Uh, but you still get the same relationship. It, it's maybe a little bit stronger, uh, but oh, and we, we also get rid of corporations because some people say, well, you know, they own a home through a company, so we get rid of companies that own homes. And still you get this very, very weak relationship between typical property value in some range and how much tax gets paid. So what's left? one other thing we looked at is, well, maybe it's people who bought a long time ago, but, but they're not over 64. Yeah. So then we can find the data to people who bought their home between 2013 and 2018. And that's where you find the weakest relationship. So people who were buying homes 2013 to 2018, they have a very, the people at the top pay very, very little in tax, even less than the whole population uh, in terms of the top 5%. So, you know, 2013 to 2018, people think overseas money in the market was a big factor. So that could be something that's going on. But we really haven't ruled in or ruled out a a variety of possible causes. Fascinating. (laughs) Okay, so you removed the the factors there that everyone I think would jump to really quickly to explain it. There are obviously some benefits to the province to allow for the system to flourish as it is. So what would those be for the province? 
Well, as is, I think uh, it's not great. I mean, I think we have housing that's unaffordable and we have a tax system that I think people can look at and say, you know, I work really hard. I'm struggling to find a house. And I discover that, you know, people who, who own the most expensive homes aren't paying very much, much tax to D.C. Have, you know, I don't mind paying tax on my earnings, but, you know, uh, if I see a glaring unfairness, you know, I, I think people might uh, bristle at that. So, you know, one, one thing we came up with is uh, an idea that if you had a minimum income tax, obviously seniors, you'd probably exempt people who bought their, bought, bought their home a long time ago uh, might be exempt. Uh, but if you just said, if you bought your home any time recently, you ought to be paying at least 1% of property value and income tax. You know, that's that's a lot less than, than most people would have to pay if they were actually uh, purchasing properties out of income tax in Canada. And if you did that, 1% minimum income tax. So, you know, if you're already paying more than 1% of your uh, property value and income tax, you're good to go. But if you added that insurance that everybody pay that much, that everybody contribute something, that nobody live in a $5 million house they just bought and pay, you know, 10 grand in income tax, you could actually raise $2 billion a year for the province. Wow. And that's $2 billion that wouldn't have to be raised through an income tax, $2 billion of sales tax we could cut, or it's $2 billion that could be sent, uh, spent on improving schools or housing the homeless or providing assistance to people struggling with addiction. Obviously, a lot of good stuff could be done with $2 billion a year. Sure. Okay. So then why isn't it? <laughs> well, that's a good question. You know, the province did put in the speculation tax. Yes. And, you know, going back a few years, this idea of a minimum income tax was something that we floated. Yeah. Uh, some colleagues and I prior to the enactment of the speculation tax. But what the speculation tax became was either you live in the house as a resident or you don't. And if you don't, you pay tax. And if you do or, you know, or if you're a landlord, you, you don't. You, if you're not a landlord, you don't live in the house that you own. You pay this extra tax. What we had suggested, again, was don't make it a zero one. Either you're in or you're out make it sort of a smooth thing. If How much income tax you're paying, if it's below some reasonable threshold, then you top up with something like the speculation tax. So it would be a minor adjustment to the speculation tax. I don't know if the province uh, and the Ministry of Finance have the uh, will at this point, having already done a lot on the tax file and probably more thinking about housing supply as a road to affordability. But I do think this is something that would both raise revenue and I think convince people more so that they live in a place with a fair tax system. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, and what you're describing, though, that came out of the study, the findings don't suggest that it's very fair the way it's been set up. Do you think most people understand this? I have no idea. I know that a lot of people think, oh, I see all those fancy homes and I know nobody lives in them. Right. But after the empty homes tax and speculation tax, it turns out people do live in them. Right. I just don't know if people uh, have an idea that uh, we have a system in British Columbia where some of the most affluent people are paying almost, you know, you know, very little in taxation. I don't know the extent to which that's known. I didn't know it going into the study. Of course, you don't do a study if you <laughs> already know the answer. I, I suspected there might be an issue. Uh, and so, so, so we did the study with the, with the help of Canadian uh, Housing Statistics Program data. It's not something you could know, you know, just looking around. Sure. Uh, but, but, but it does seem to be the case. Wow, it's very fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, Tom. Well, my real pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. 
be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.